Hello and welcome to the Best of Fair Mormon on the Mormon Faircast. This is part two of the April 2015 General Conference Apologetic Review. And in this session, we are going to be talking about particularly the, the General Conference sessions that took place on Sunday and in the General Women's session on the Saturday prior to the other General Conference sessions. And we have two panelists, including myself. We're going to start off with Cassandra Hedelius, who is joining us via the telephone. So, Cassandra, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and what you do for Fair Mormon? All right. Hello from Maryland. Um, my name is Cassandra Hedelius. I have been a member of Fair Mormon for, gosh, several years now, I guess. Um, I do the Fair Mormon front page, which is a news clipping service. Um, every weekday, you can sign up to have... Uh, news articles about the church, including links delivered to your very own email inbox. You should go to our website and sign up if you haven't yet. And then Nick and I also do the Fair Mormon Front Page News Review podcast, where we go into more depth about some of those news stories. And I love Fair Mormon. It's great. It's been a wonderful experience. Fantastic. And our other panelist is Steve Densley. So, Steve, why don't you tell us uh, your title with Fair Mormon and, and at least a brief overview of what you do since you seem to do everything. I am the executive vice president of Fair Mormon, and in that capacity, I do a lot of the um, oversight of the different directors and managers. And uh, lately, what's been taking up most of my time is organizing the conference. And uh, so I'll just put a little plug in for the conference. It's on August 6th and 7th at the Utah Valley Convention Center in Provo. And uh, we're going to have a really exciting and unusual conference this year. We actually have two uh, uh, non-members of the church who, will, who are going to speak, Margaret Barker and Stephen Webb. And, um, and, and then we've got a number of other members of the church that are just going to give really exciting, fascinating presentations. People can go to fairmormon.org and click on the links to the conference to find out more about the speakers and about the, uh, the lineup, um, how you buy tickets. And right now, we still have early bird prices on those tickets, so people should go there now and, and get their tickets right away. Do you know what the price is right now? Uh, you, you would have to yeah. ask me that. I think it's, uh, <laughs> I want to I say $65 for both days. Um, but uh, go to the website, and you can verify whether or not I'm telling the truth. <laughs> you, could, you could always just say, it's less expensive than it will be if you wait. That's, that's true, too. And you can, you can, buy, um, you can buy lunch um, online as well to uh, include with your ticket price. Um, but it's, you know, if you're, if, you're, if you're interested at all, you ought to come. If for no other reason, even if you don't want to hear the speakers, it's got the world's best bookstore of right. uh, you know all of the, the the best books on defending the church and 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 uh, the, the doctrine and history, um, and and, the, and then you get to to meet neat people like Nick and Cassandra. Yeah, <laughs> I will do that. All right. Well, thank you, Steve. And uh, I'm Nick Galetti, manager of podcasting for Fair Mormon, and so I'll be helping to moderate this uh, discussion. And we're going to start out with uh, with Steve on a presentation from the general women's meeting. Yeah, I mean, it's really exciting, Nick, that the, the general women's meeting is um, so much more broad than it used to be. They're including yeah. uh, girls from age eight um, all the way up through the Relief Society, and they're really making an effort to kind of expand it out. You know, I, I never watched the, the women's meetings before, and um, 
last few years I've started to. And one of the, I, I put a plug in too for the church's general conference podcast because that's a great way. Yeah. To uh, go back and review some of these, you can you can put the thing on double speed and you know <laughs> hurry through some of the you know um, if you're listening to uh, oh I don't know some of the slower speakers it's, there you, uh, you know picks up the pace but uh, <laughs> you, you know you can get through the whole women's session in about a half hour that way um, but it, it uh, the, the other thing that struck me about this was was how strongly apologetic it was yeah um, a lot of talk about defending the doctrine of the church, defending the church, how to do that. And um, Sister Esplin's talk was uh, the first one that really struck me along those lines. Uh, it's, it's entitled, Filling Our Homes with Light and Truth. And she uses the analogy of pop cans, you know, where you have a, an empty soda pop can and one that's full. And, you know, you can take that one that's empty and just crush it. And the one that's full, you can exert all kinds of pressure on it. But, uh, you know, it's pretty hard to, to, to crack that thing. And the point was, is that when we fill our lives and fill our homes with the spirit and with gospel truth, then we have power to withstand the attacks that come from outside and push against us. And, um, you know, that, that, that we're all being, um, we're, we're experiencing those kinds of forces right now. And the way to withstand them is to... Um, is to fill our lives with the Spirit and fill our lives yeah. with gospel truth. I really like what she said about this, and, and, and she said this, this phrase a couple of times um, in her talk, and uh, so, so listen for this. She said, Many of us have been baptized and have received the gift of the Holy Ghost, whose role it is to reveal and teach the truth of all things. With the privilege of that gift comes the responsibility to seek truth, to live the truth we know, and to share and defend the truth. So I really love what she's saying there about how we need to seek the truth, live the truth, and share and defend the truth. You know, and sometimes people wonder about that and think, you know, is it my responsibility to go out there and defend the church? Or, you know, isn't that the responsibility of the, you know, the 12 apostles or the 70? And, you know, Sister Esplin saying it's all of our responsibility as people who've been baptized as members of this church, we have a duty to defend the truth. And she gave a great example of that. She talked about um, a, uh, uh, her, her great-grandfather's sister, Elizabeth Staley Walker. Um, that's when she was first married, she was running a mail station, and people traveling through would stop by. And, um, you know, some of them, uh, you know, sometimes they were well-educated people and knew about Mormonism, and they would accused Joseph Smith of being a fraud and that he just wanted to make money. And, um, you know, Sister Esplin says she was too frightened to say anything, you know, to these people who are ridiculing her religion. She didn't know whether or not what they were saying was true. Yeah. You know, and and, and that's, that's the way it is with, with us today. Sometimes you hear these, these uh, attacks against the church and, you know, it's like Michael Lash's book, Shaken Faith Syndrome. Sometimes they can shake our faith and we wonder, oh no, I wonder, I wonder if there's anything to that. And uh, Sister Esplin said she didn't feel like she could have defended her belief if she, if she'd tried. You know, and that's why it is so important for us to fill, to fill our lives yeah. with light and truth and knowledge. Um, she said later when they, uh, her family moved that uh, she went out and she prayed and, and wanted to find out the truth and, and find out about Joseph Smith and, and the Book of Mormon. And she ended up having a dream 
where she said that she was standing on a road by a hill and she saw a young man kneeling down and, and another man looking down at him. And she said there were a lot of people walking by, but nobody really seemed interested. But that to her, the impression was that, that, that the angel Moroni really did visit Joseph Smith and really did give him gold plates. And um, then she went later to the dedication of the Salt Lake Temple and she said that she saw there the same picture that she had seen in her dream. She in says, a stained glass or something. Yeah, right? she says she thinks it was, you know, she recalls it was a stained glass window. I, I was thinking uh, I had to go back and try to see if I yeah, can find it. Yeah, which one is it? Yeah, find what she was talking about. You know, maybe it's online. We can find it and put it up as a link. But, you know, so she saw that same uh, uh, illustration or the same uh, scenario played out in that stained glass window. And, and she said that... Uh, that she felt satisfied that if she saw the Hill Cumorah itself, that, you know, it couldn't look more real, that it was convincing to her. And um, so, again, um, she, as she concludes her talk, she uses that same phrase about defending the truth. She says, Like Elizabeth, we live in a world of many doubters and critics who ridicule and oppose the truths we hold dear. We may hear confusing stories and conflicting messages. Also like Elizabeth, we will have to do our best to hold on to whatever light and truth we currently have, especially in difficult circumstances. The answers to our prayers may not come dramatically, but we must find quiet moments to seek greater light and truth. And when we receive it, It is our responsibility to live it, to share it, and to defend it. Yeah. So, Cassandra, what do you think of the uh, parable of the soda can? Do you got any input on that? (laughs) Um, I love that. That's great. Um, Just how do you stay strong? You can't be strong if you're empty. Um, And the way that Sister Esplin and Steve has explained how she's talking about we all have a duty to defend the Church. It's not just some you know, weird little subset of apologists, but it's everyone has made a covenant to stand as a witness. Um, and how she tied that very directly to the home, and just it's the home where we um, are able to fill ourselves with light and truth and make sure that our children are, and that, you know, the world is full of all of these distortions and misinformation, and it's we have to make sure that the home is full of the correct information of the truth. That's where children are going to get their foundation, and that also needs to be our refuge from the, uh, the rest of the world, which can be very confusing. Yeah. Well, and of course, this women's conference session kind of marked, was it the 20-year anniversary? They're talking about this being the 20-year anniversary of the uh, proclamation to the family. Right. And, uh, Sister Oscarson yeah. uh, really drove that home. I thought that was really... Uh, uh, so fascinating. It doesn't feel like it's been it, that it, long. It is. It's, it's, it just seems like yesterday, but so much. You think about yeah. how much has changed since then. Um, it's, and, and Cassandra is going to talk to us about Sister Oscarson's, uh, Sister Oscarson's yeah. speech. So, yeah, if, as, as far as I can tell, is that, is that accurate? Has it been 20 years or uh, just shy that of 20 years? That is correct. Okay. The proclamation on the family was introduced 20 years ago, and it was introduced in the women's meeting of conference. Um, and so Sister Oscarson, her title is Defenders of the Family Proclamation. And she starts out with this great story from her family history, 
um, about a young woman who had to stand up and protect the missionaries from an angry mob. Um, it's really quite the story for just a teenage girl. So she was 17 or 18 years of age. Um, and, you know, this mob was shouting and was threatening to harm them. Um, and she stood up before them and she said that the elders were under her protection and that the mob could not harm one hair of their heads. Um, and the mob just stood aghast. They could tell that God was with her. Um, and so this story sets up her overall theme, which is that we need to be that brave, not because we're going to face down howling mobs, hopefully not, it's unlikely, but because there is so much criticism in the world. And specifically, she says, we need to defend the proclamation. And, I mean, that's interesting. You don't normally think about a, a document, um, a, something that the Church has put out as needing defense, and yet um, I do think that she is absolutely correct and possibly even prophetic that um, the proclamation is being attacked, the truths and principles within it are being attacked, and it's probably going to continue and get worse. Um, she goes through the three principles in the proclamation that are, she says, are especially in need of steadfast defenders. The first is marriage between a man and a woman. Um, the second is the divine roles of mothers and fathers. And the third is the sanctity of the home. Just in our culture right now, it is not easy, it's certainly not fashionable to stand up for those things, and yet we know through Revelation, through the teachings of our church leaders, that those things are important. And even some parts of the world still know, I think, that social science gives us ample reason to know and understand that the family is so important that if you were born into a family with a mother and a father who love each other and are stable and keep a peaceful home environment, that you are statistically much, much more likely to go on to do well in life and to be happy and well-adjusted and successful than someone who did not have those blessings. So when so many voices out there are saying, well, that's rude, that's unkind, and there are other kinds of families, and they're doing their best and deserve a support, well, that's a little bit of a red herring. Yes, of course, people are, we always assume that people are good and doing their best, and we should always be kind, but the truth still remains that there is one system, which is superior both for spiritual reasons and for sociological reasons, and it is, I mean, we're being told very specifically by Sister Oscarson and other leaders that we have a duty to stand up and say those things. Yeah. When you say that you, you don't think that, you know, people will be uh, approached by a mob similar to this uh, girl, I think it was in Italy, right, That the story that you referred to? Mm-hmm. Um, but do we not all kind of face digital mobs in some respects when we're out on Facebook and we stand up for our truth? We... We, we see that kind of coming, you know, into play a little bit. And it's, certainly it's not tarred and feathering in the physical sense, but um, it just seems rather... There, there is Twitter, yes. Yeah, Twitter. <laughs> well, Twitter. And, and Nick, I mean, there are people today losing their jobs yeah. because they have expressed support for uh, a traditional marriage. You know, and, and Sister Oscarson said, let us be defenders of marriage as the Lord has ordained it while continuing to show love and compassion for those with differing views. Um, I, I also really loved the example she gave of her daughter. 
Um, she, you know, she was, yeah. Sister Oscarson was saying it's so important for us. And in this time when we want our young women, she says, to have the potential to achieve and be whatever they can imagine. We eagerly teach our children to aim high in this life. We want to make sure that our daughters know that they have the potential to achieve and be whatever they can imagine. We hope they will love learning, be educated, talented, and maybe even become the next Marie Curie or Eliza Arsenault. So she said that her her youngest daughter, Abby, uh, she uh, got a notice from her children's school that they had a career day at school. And so she went ahead and let the school know that she'd be happy to come in and talk for career day about being a homemaker. And she said she didn't, she didn't hear back from him. She was kind of, she thought, well, what, you know, what's going on? So she, she called the school again and found out the two teachers had expressed a desire to hear about this. Mm. So she went down to the school and she talked about how as a homemaker, she has to be an expert in, you know, to some extent in medicine and psychology and religion and teaching and music and literature and art and finance and decorating and hairstyling and chauffeuring and sports and culinary arts and all <laughs> kinds of other things. Yeah. And she said these children were really impressed. Uh, and, and so she applied again the next year to come and speak for Career Day and six more classes wanted to hear her talk about how impressive it is to be a homemaker. You know, I, I worry that with the emphasis that we place on, you know, women getting the education and women, you know, choosing a career, you're always asking, you know, your young daughters, you know, what are you going to be when you grow up, that we don't put enough emphasis on how important it is to prepare to be a homemaker. And I thought it was fascinating. Sister Oscarson, she put that responsibility on men as well as women. So she ended her talk by saying this. The last principle we need to stand and defend is the sanctity of the home. We need to take a term which is sometimes spoken of with derision and elevate it. It is the term homemaker. All of us—women, men, youth, and children, single or married—can work at being homemakers. We should make our homes places of order, refuge, holiness, and safety. Our homes should be places where the Spirit of the Lord is felt in rich abundance and where the scriptures and the gospel are studied, taught, and lived. Let us defend the home as a place which is second only to the temple in holiness. Well, and and I guess I want to ask kind of a general umbrella question about the women's session that there was very much this theme of defending the family, promoting family, and, and traditional marriage. What is significant about that with respect to the fact that it was the women's session as it bridged over to the Saturday sessions, which seemed to carry that same theme to a certain extent? Why why so much? Uh, any, any thoughts or impressions that you received as to why there was such a strong thematic element that way? Yeah, I think that women are hit especially hard with these messages that devalue the role of a mother and a homemaker. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm an LDS woman. I am married. I do not have kids yet. I work outside the home. Um, so when I think about being a homemaker, I sort of look forward to it, but I also recognize that it's going to be kind of exhausting in ways that my life right now is not. Um, you know, just I just wanted to point out that I do have kind of an outsider ex- perspective there. Um, but, you know, I have a career. 
It's great. I'm really glad that I've been able to get all the education that I have. I am really grateful for that. I feel like the Lord um, led me to do that. And yet, I also, I, I know that when I do have children and when I uh, make sure that our home is a place of light and learning and truth for them, that I will be contributing more than I could any other way. There is really, there, there's just really nothing that I think I could ever do in my career that would compare to raising children who are good citizens, good neighbors, and who are good saints and strong in the gospel. Yeah. And so I think that the women's leaders of the church are just trying to help women to remember that women have a lot of choices. That's fantastic. We wouldn't want it any other way, but we just need to make sure that they're getting the correct information about all of their choices. And the wider culture doesn't give them correct information about the choice of being a mother and a homemaker. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. Well, let's move on. I think we're jumping into the uh, Sunday morning session. So Sister Wixom, uh, she had an incredible talk. In fact, I, I have a hard time finding a highlight. I think the whole thing was was quotable. <laughs> yeah, um, I agree. As I've gone through with these different talks, I highlighted stuff I liked, and, and it was. I, I, I highlighted almost everything in Sister Wickham's yeah. talk. Yeah, it's incredible. So, Cassandra, I think you, that's just that's yours. Um, so, Sister Wixom frames her talk around a church meeting that she went to, a Relief Society meeting, where a young mother um, shared her personal story, which, um, for this young mother, grew up in the church, you know, was active, went to seminary, sealed in the temple, all of that. Um, and Sister Wixom says that she had the spirit of inquiry, and she had all of these questions. And as with pretty much anything in life where reality is complicated and to some extent in teaching lessons, church lessons or seminary lessons, you can't convey all of the complexity and all of the answers. And so she, this young mother said that the answers were, were not bringing her peace because the questions were getting harder and there weren't easy answers. And so she began to have questions even about the, the very foundations of her faith. Um, and so the story goes on just to talk about different ways that she interacted with those around her. There were some who said, well, just lean on my faith. And that didn't work um, because those people weren't grappling with the same questions that she was. There were others who said that they knew her heart, they just trusted her, that her heart was in the right place. She was trying to find answers. She wasn't um, just doing this to be rebellious. Um, so they gave her space. They didn't um, put her under undue pressure. And they chose to love me while I was trying to figure it out for myself. And then her ward members, even when she chose for a little while to not be very active in her ward, um, it says that they gave her love. They made her feel included. And her word was not a place to put on a perfect face. It was a place of nurture. And so she went through some hard times where it seems like she couldn't get the answers, but she continued to seek. She continued to read and pray, and she said that Jesus Christ always remained, even when the rest of her testimony she felt like um, had burned into a pile of ashes. 
And so eventually she was able to rebuild her faith. She started with basic gospel truths in the primary songbook. She was called to be the primary pianist, which was a great calling for her. She could focus just on those very basics and sort of relearn them along with the little children in primary. Um, she focused on the Book of Mormon. Um, she regained her ability to have spiritual experiences with the truths that are in the Book of Mormon. Um, and eventually she managed to rebuild her testimony, and it seems that now she is doing fine. It doesn't say that she knows all of the answers. I don't think it's possible to know the answer to every possible question while we are still in this life, because we don't have time machines. We can't go back in time and see things as they unfolded, so we're always seeing through a glass darkly when it comes to questions about history. Um, but she found out that Heavenly Father was really there, and she was able to regain her testimony after she had lost it. And, and so the story is great for a number of reasons. Uh, number one, just if somebody is struggling like this sister is, and um, to be able to hear the message that it's okay, you are not condemned, you are not a bad person, and there is a way back. It might be really hard for a while, and you will have to struggle with it, but you can find your way back. And meanwhile, the rest of the people around you, you around you, your family and your ward members, um, they're being encouraged to love you and to welcome you and nurture you and not make you feel like there is something wrong with you or that you are not welcome among them. Well, and the, the if I remember correctly, the the talk itself ended up kind of being a dual nature talk where there was a talk of how to overcome these questions and doubts and faith struggles that seemed like it was not only for the person that's going through the trials, but also for those people that are, I guess, either witnessing or fellowshipping those that are going through the trials. So it really kind of had a dual dual nature to to the advice that she gave. Yeah. Um, Steve, you had some thoughts on that particular talk too, correct? Well, yeah. Um, I, I thought it was really interesting in this talk how— uh, Sister Wixom quoted Mother Teresa and quoted an archbishop to whom Mother Teresa wrote. A lot of people don't realize that Mother Teresa really struggled with her faith. Um, she wrote a book, I think it's called Come Be Thou My Light, if I remember right. She didn't write it per se. I think there, you know, sure. it's a collection of things that she wrote where she expressed you know, what some people have described as a dark night of the soul, where she didn't really feel like she was... Um, receiving the comfort or companionship of God. And um, she she wrote to this archbishop to, asking, asking him to pray for her, that she wouldn't spoil God's work. And uh, she said, there's such terrible darkness within me as if everything was dead. And so um, Sister Wixom quotes the archbishop in his reply. He said, God guides you, dear mother. You're not so much in the dark as you think. The path to be followed may not always be clear at once. Pray for light. Do not decide too quickly. Listen to what others have to say. Consider their reasons. You will always find something to help you. Guided by faith, by prayer, and by reason, you have a right intention. You have enough. My friend thought, 
If Mother Teresa could live her religion without all the answers and without a feeling of clarity in all things, maybe she could too. She could take one simple step forward in faith and then another. She could focus on the truths she did believe and let those truths fill her mind and heart. As she reflected back, she said, My testimony had become like a pile of ashes. It had all burned down. All that remained was Jesus Christ. She continued, But He does not leave you when you have questions. When anyone tries to keep the commandments, the door is wide open. Prayer and scripture study become incredibly important. So she, she goes on to talk about how she bought a, a, brought a, a, she bought a primary a songbook. Yeah. You know, and she's reading the, the primary songs and, um, and, and that, that those simple truths in the pri- primary hymns were so meaningful to her. They, they led her to pray for faith, to lift, she said, the heaviness that she felt. And that, that struck me, Nick, because that's what we see in the Book of Mormon, where yeah. we have, you know, King Benjamin's people where they say, oh, apply the atoning blood of Christ, or um, King Lamoni's father, or Alma the Younger, or Enos, when they pray for repentance, they, they pray to have the, the burden lifted, um, they turn their, ha- their hearts and their thoughts to Jesus Christ, and, and that's when, you know, sometimes at the very bottom, of, you know, the pit of despair, they uh, reach out to Christ and, and, and they're, they're lifted. But it's like the um, archbishop told her, um, take one simple step forward in faith and then another. Focus on what you do believe and, and, and be patient. Um, you know, you, uh, you, you, things aren't as dark as you may think. Yeah. And one of the themes that kind of came out to me in the stories that were told in other talks and in other sessions about people that had difficulties or questions about the gospel is the the theme always seemed to come out of be patient. This will take time. There was never a story that said, you're going to get your answer the second you want it and everything's just going to be wiped clean and perfect. Right. The, the archbishop said, um, you know, don't make this decision too quickly, right? Yeah. And we see that a lot. A lot. Where people, I mean, we've seen so many um, uh, comments on the internet of people saying, I read, um, you know, the letter to a CS director and I just had to leave. Yeah. I couldn't do this anymore. Yeah. And, um, you know, come on, you know, hang in there, uh, wait for further light because it's yeah. there and it will come. And, um, you know, sometimes there are things that we have to endure in, um, in faith that we don't have, you know, we're looking through a dark a glass darkly at this point, and um, we don't have all the answers, but there are things that we know. We shouldn't throw away the things we know because of things we don't know. Right. So one more point about this talk is just, it's, it's about the condition of your heart. Are you sincere? Are you really desiring to know? Um, and... I think the alternative to that is there are a lot of voices out there, and especially online, that will encourage you instead to be angry and to be self-righteous and to feel like you are better than the, the leaders of the church in the past or that just they should be condemned and you can't have anything to do with them anymore. And I think that that speaks to an attitude adjustment that needs to happen the spirit would have a hard time working with a heart that is in that condition. But if we can just remain sincere and prayerful and try and have 
just the, the particle of faith that the scriptures talk about, then you will be able to come through it. Excellent. Yeah, you know, Nick, I, I, I love how the, um, the, the message kept coming through that the bishop, the, the friends, the family members kept on saying, uh, you know, wherever you are, you know, whatever stage you're at, we'll meet you there. Give us whatever you have to offer. offer. So, you know, she became, a, I think she became a primary pianist at yeah. first. Um, or maybe I'm getting that mixed up no, with that's uh, right. the next story. But, uh, you know, it's, it's like Cassandra said, it's so important that people uh, who, who are sincere and want to know be patient. Um, Sister Wixom said, During her lesson, I came to know more fervently that answers to our sincere questions come when we earnestly seek and when we live the commandments. I was reminded that our faith can reach beyond the limits of current reason. And oh, how I want to be like those who surrounded this young mother, loving and supporting her. As President Dieter F. Utdorf said, we are all pilgrims seeking God's light as we journey on the path of discipleship. We do not condemn others for the amount of light they may or may not have. Rather, we nourish and encourage all light until it grows clear, bright, and true. All right. I think we can, we can slap a seal of endorsement on everything in that talk. Um, and, and encourage people to check that out because there's just there really is so much to it. So, but we we should move on to uh, to the next talk. Well, the next one we wanted to touch on was Elder Nielsen's talk, which is very much like Sister Wixom's talk. Yeah. This one was so touching because of how personal it was. Uh, Elder Nielsen talks about how his sister left the church. Um, he, you know, she, she, he he starts out talking about how Jesus Christ was. Um, you know, criticized for spending time with sinners and, um, you know, people who have lost their way. He tells the, uh, you know, the uh, story of the, the prodigal son, you know, and also um, references how, you know, if somebody loses one piece of silver that you're just going to go and scour the house trying to find it, you know. And so his family had the experience of his sister becoming, he says, disenchanted with the church. Um, you know, this is, this is such a familiar story. It's, it's much like what Sister Wixom just said. Um, and I, I think a lot of our listeners are going to have this same experience with family members, with friends, maybe even themselves. Um, she said, or Elder, Wick, or Elder Nelson said that, that his sister was persuaded by those who mocked and criticized the early leaders of the church. Um, she, her, her faith in, in living prophets and apostles began to, to wane and diminish. And so, he says that over time, her doubts overcame her faith, and she chose to leave the church. And, you know, the family, of course, is wondering, what do you do? And um, I love the example they said, and I think this can provide so much hope for so many people, that, um, you know, like the prodigal son, the father had to let the prodigal son go, uh, you know, and, and by letting him go, I mean, so many times members of the church are criticized for, you know, for ostracizing or cutting people off. I don't think I've ever seen that personally. What I've seen is people cutting themselves off and then claiming that they've been cut off. Um, but, you know, in this example, Elder Nielsen's family spent uh, extra effort to try to make sure that this sister knew that although figuratively they had to let her go, 
that they needed to let her know that they still loved her, that they still wanted her to be part of the family. Um, the, their mother would place Susan's name on the prayer roll. They invited her to family events. They tried to make sure that um, they had a birthday dinner for her. Um, you know, when uh, when her granddaughter was was being baptized, um, you know, the brother was there to perform the ordinance. Um, you know that she had she had home teachers and visiting teachers that uh, kept kept up with her. You know they invited them to um, missions and marriages, which I thought was was fascinating. That he he cited that you know inviting her to marriages. I presume would be marriages in the temple for Elder Nelson's family. Um, he's inviting his sister who's left the church to these marriages. We hear so often you know how that's something that harms family members to, to not allow them to come into the temple. In this case, Elder Nelson is, is citing that as something that was a positive thing to in, include her in that, that occasion. And, and then when she was, uh, you know, she graduated from, uh, from a California university with some advanced degree, um, they all went there to support her. And he says that although we could not embrace all of her choices, we could certainly embrace her. We loved, we watched, and we waited. And so over time, as they're, they're continuing to extend this love, they're continuing to uh, involve her in, in family events. One of the uh, children, I think it was, that were, uh, maybe it was his children, were staying in, in, her, in Susan's home, uh, helping care for the granddaughter. Uh, Susan would help this granddaughter say her prayers at night, you know. And so there was always this extended circle where they would try to include Susan in these kinds of things. And so when the time came for Elder Nielsen to be called as a general authority, Elder Nielsen's wife said, you know, I think it's time for Susan to come back. And and I loved that phrase because as I recall, uh, that's the same phrase that Maxine Hanks' friend used with her, hmm. where she she went to you know many of our listeners probably know Maxine Hanks was somebody who about oh man twenty or thirty years ago was excommunicated from the church, and only two or three years ago her friend turned to her and says, "Don't you think it's time for you to come back?" And Maxine Hanks at by that time uh, something something just clicked within her where she thought, you know I th- I think it probably is, and she started to take those steps. Well, in this case. Elder Nielsen's uh, wife suggested that to her, and his daughter Katie said that um, that he should he should ask her to listen to General Conference that day. So he went out into the lobby from General Conference, left his front seat, um, you know, and went out to the foyer and called. She just he just left a message on the answering machine and said, "Hey, I think you ought to watch General Conference today." And you know, of course, he was being called as a general authority at that yeah. session. Well, as it turns out, she got the message. She listened to all of the sessions of General Conference, and she says that the the, uh, the words of the prophets and apostles and the love for her family moved her to turn and begin the walk home. So she, Susan described her experience as, uh, in in terms of the Book of Mormon, as letting go of the iron rod and and wandering in mist of darkness. And I I thought this was fascinating too, that she said she did not know she was lost until her faith was reawakened by the light of Christ. I think that happens too. It's, it's, you know, people talk about how, hey, I'm happier than I've ever been. And this is, this is great. And then when we talk to people who have returned, you know, they, they, they make these kinds of comments that, wow, you know, it's like being awakened again and, and coming back into the light. And, um, you know, and so those those kinds of stories to us are are so 
so familiar and it's so great to see these examples of people who do leave and then do come back and, and how that happens. That in this case, that he said, Elder Nelson says that after all we can do, we watch, we pray, we wait for the Lord's hand to be revealed. And he says that he realized that in some ways that he was the prodigal son in that all of us fall short of the glory of God. All of us need the atonement. All of us are lost and we need to be found. And he said, Susan and I were actually on the same path back home. I think that can help us to have some perspective on these kinds of things when when people who are close to us wander, that um, all of us are wandering in some sense, and we need to be patient and show love and to continue to include people and continue to be good examples and continue to have hope and faith that uh, they will be touched by the Lord and choose to turn back. Yeah, and it's not an us versus them either. Sometimes we get pitted in that in that position sometimes where it's, we're the actives, they're the inactives, and it's an us, us against them in, in some respects. So I think that that putting us all on the same path is very important, very Zion-like in that respect. Any thoughts from you, Cassandra, on that talk? No, I think Steve actually covered everything. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> next one. Well, the next one, Nick, is um, one that I think is going to really uh, be referred to a lot in the future. It, it's um, it, it's one of those talks that, uh, uh, well, it, it's it's going to... Uh, landmark talk. It's, it's a landmark it. talk, I think. It, it's one that, you know, a lot of the talks that we've talked, to, we've talked about so far are um, talks where we're, uh, you know, trying to reach out to people maybe who are disaffected with the church, maybe maybe members who have left or, or, or have had um, doubts or concerns. This one is... Uh, really maybe responding to criticisms against the church that come from our evangelical friends and neighbors where they say that we don't really believe in Christ, you know, and sometimes it's really hard for Mormons to understand, uh, you know, why is it that people say we're not Christians? You know, we say, well, it's in, it's in the name of our church for Pete's sake. Why, yeah. wouldn't, you, why wouldn't you think we're Christians? When you, when you sit down and you talk to evangelicals about this and, and listen to them to find out why they say this, one of the primary reasons they give is that Mormons don't really believe in the atonement. We say we do, but we don't really believe in grace. We don't believe that we're saved by Christ's sacrifice. We believe we have to save ourselves. And, you know, unfortunately, I think that our rhetoric in the church for a long time um, adds a lot of fuel to that fire. Yeah. Um, that, uh, you know, that there's a lot that we've got to do to become perfect. And that, um, you know, unless we become perfect, that, uh, you know, it's kind of an all or nothing thing. And, you know, you kind of got to check all these boxes. Um, there's a, there's a list of everything you got to be doing. And if you're not doing all of it, then, um, then you're out of luck. So I understand how people can be given that impression sure. that, that that's what we believe. And I love how Elder Uchtdorf um, helped to reframe our beliefs in a way that makes it really powerful you know, and, and easy for us to go back to our evangelical friends and say, look, this is what the second counselor in, in the first presidency has said about what we really believe about the grace of God and about faith and about the power of Christ to save us. Sometimes we don't communicate this well enough, but Elder Uchtdorf has, has done a great job for us. So he talks about how grace is the divine assistance and endowment of strength by which we grow from the flawed and limited beings we are now into exalted beings of truth and light 
until we are glorified in truth and know all things. So there's this process by which we're becoming like God and yeah. that grace helps us through that process and that that's, what, that's the point here is for us to make that, um, that change, that transformation toward God. And that's why we talked, I think, so much about obedience and about commandments because those are the directions. That's, and that's what the Doctrine and Covenants calls us. They're directions by which we can know how to act before God. Well, there's signs of our faith too. Right. And, and you know, El Ruchdorf said the reason why we keep the commandments is because we love God. We're, we're showing our faith. We're showing that we believe him, that he can change us. We can become like him and we're, we're exerting that effort. But it's not by virtue of the, you know, our actions that we're saved. It's by virtue of Christ's actions that we're saved. He says, because we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God and because there cannot any unclean thing enter in the, in the kingdom of God. Every one of us is unworthy to return to God's presence. Even if we were to serve God with our whole souls, it is not enough, for we would still be unprofitable servants. We cannot earn our way into heaven. The demands of justice stand as a barrier, which we are powerless to overcome on our own. But all is not lost. The grace of God is our great and everlasting hope. Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the plan of mercy appeases the demands of justice and brings about means unto man that they may have faith unto repentance. And, and so since we have all fallen, since we have all um, come short of perfection, you know, the grace of God Elder Uchtdorf says it doesn't merely restore us to our previous innocent state. It helps us to become like him. Um, and of course, we know that we need to do something, you know, and that's where I, you know, I'm always confused by evangelicals when they say they don't have to do anything. And I guess there are extreme uh, branches of, um, you know, Calvinism that would say that, uh, you know, it's, it's not really your choice. Uh, for the most part, uh, you know, our, our, our evangelical friends believe you you do have to do something. At the very least, you have to confess a belief in Christ. Right. Right. So you have to have faith. I mean, whatever the, whatever that means to them. Whatever the rhetoric that they use. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you have to do something. Yeah. And so for them to criticize us for saying that, um, you know, that you have to do something, you know, they talk about, um, you know, the, the uh, salvation is free. It's a free gift. And yet, even evangelicals think you have to do something. Yeah. You have to You have to have faith and, you know. Um, to me, that seems like it's it's something. Yeah. And and our willingness to be obedient is a manifestation of our faith. You know, this is this is really, I think, kind of um, an extension of discussions that have been going on in the church now. Maybe started by Stephen Robinson in his book Believing Believe Christ. Christ. Um, later, Robert Millet expanded on this. Um, the uh, uh, Brad Wilcox, most recently, uh, he gave a talk at BYU. Um, wrote wrote a couple of books about this um, continuous atonement, um, and you know they all talked about how we sometimes I think um, misunderstand the verse in Second Nephi that says that we are saved by grace after all we can do. Um, that we focus so much on that after all we can do phrase uh, that it becomes. Um, you know, we've got to do 
everything we can. And, and then and, it triggers. Yeah, right. right before we're about to crack, you know, right before we're just, you know, we're about to give up. Then God steps in and starts helping us out. And, and that's never been my experience. Um, I, I don't feel like God's just standing on the sidelines, not involved in my life, waiting to see if I've done everything I can. Um, you know, Elder, Elder Uchtdorf, well, let me, let me read uh, what he said about this. He's quoting Nephi. The prophet Nephi made an important contribution to our understanding of God's grace when he declared, we labor diligently to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. However, I wonder if sometimes we misinterpret the phrase, after all we can do. We must understand that after does not equal, does not equal because we're not saved because of all that we can do. Have any of us done all that we can do? Does God wait until we have expended every effort before he will intervene in our lives with his saving grace? You know, Elder Uchtdorf makes the point that it's not because of all we can do that we're saved. And if you read that verse in context, it's talking about the grace of God. It's not talking about works. And as a matter of fact, Nephi contrasts the grace of God with the works. He says, even though we believe in Christ, yet we still keep the commandments. Um, you know, and so he's, he's saying, he's not saying we keep the commandments so we can be saved. He's saying we're saved by the grace of Christ, but we still keep the commandments. Um, you know, we, we love God and we want to worship him and, and do what he's asked us to do. And, um, you know, and so I, I love the example that Brad Wilcox has given of this, of, of the piano mm-hmm. and how, you know, a mother will pay for piano lessons and the child um, isn't expected to pay the mother back for those lessons, not expected to, you know, to earn some money to, uh, to, to pay for that debt. Rather, the child is expected to play the piano, to practice, to, um, to, to try to become a better piano player. And there, there are so many ways we could expand that analogy. You know, there are lesson books that the child is given. There are teachers. Um, you know, so we have scriptures and we have prophets and apostles um, who teach us and guide us and tell us, you know, how we're supposed to play, right? Yeah. And we're expected to become virtuosos. We're expected to become perfect on the piano, but maybe not yet, right? And, and our mother is not going to throw us out of the house for um, not being perfect piano players, but um, she's going to be really disappointed if we walk away from the piano. Yeah. And, and so I think that, um, you know, the, the analogy holds true in that regard, that you know, we are expected to turn our desires toward God. We're expected to be willing to obey the commandments. And uh, when we show that we're no longer willing, you know, that we, we you know, we walk away, yeah. that's where we, we become lost, not when we're continually trying to keep the commandments. So the fact that we're not perfect doesn't cause us to you know, fall from grace. It's when we walk away and say, I, you know, I'm not going to do this. I have no desire to, to become like God. 
that's when we become lost and that's when, you know, God's grace is, is uh, not able to change us anymore. Yeah. So, Cassandra. Can I say something here? Yeah, please. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say this talk is so great. Um, I think it also builds on some talks by Elder Bednar back um, maybe 10 or so years ago. Um, it's great not only because it is pointing out to people who misunderstand our doctrine that we are Christians, we do believe in the atonement, we do believe that we are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ and not by our own efforts. Um, but there is also toward the end a part where he rebukes a different misunderstanding. Well, he doesn't really rebuke it. Elder President Dorf is so jolly and gentle that he speaks to it. He says, Grace, but this life is a joyous rehearsal for eternity, that we are needing to reach greater spiritual heights, become more sensitive and open to the Spirit of God, so that we can be constantly improving and growing, and eventually even to be like God, not in this life, but eventually. Um, and I think that that is a, an extremely timely point, because the deception saying that, well, we're good enough right now, that we are, you are, that you are so special and God loves you so much, both of those are true, that you just need to be a nice person and you're good. That is not true. It's what our culture is saying, but it is um, such a really unfortunate misstatement of the gospel of what the power of God really is for that we need to be growing and improving, to becoming better and better all the time, even eventually to become like God. And grace is what makes that happen. And I mean, even more so than getting rid of our own sins and stopping the desire to sin, um, we can't do that with our own efforts, and we definitely can't become like God by our own efforts. But that is what grace is for, and we have that hope that it will happen, that living with God means being like God, and we will get there. Yeah. And so I just love any time when um, our leaders um, give us something to think about like that, that we need to make sure we're not caught up in that misconception that the gospel just seems you are special and good enough right now. It doesn't. I mean, it does mean that, but it also means a lot more. Yeah. And taken in context with the teachings that Christ gave in the New Testament and in Third Nephi, if if the gospel was simply limited to grace alone, he did an awful lot of talking about feeding the poor and clothing the naked and and doing good deeds and goodwill, which would seem to be rather well. And he got he, baptized. Yeah, and he got baptized. So yeah, I mean, there there are things like, that we need to do. Yeah. To help, uh, well, first of all, we, we, you know, we're entering into a covenant relationship with God. Um, there are signs that we make to God that we are doing that and that we're willing to take upon ourselves his name and always remember him and keep his commandments. But then if we fail to keep all of the commandments, that doesn't mean that uh, we, you know, we're, we're lost and, and um, you know, irredeemable. Right. Um, it's, it's that we are... You know, it's like uh, Brad Wilcox says, you know, his uh, evangelical friends will ask, you've been saved by grace. And Brad Wilcox, you know, says, well, you know, yes, have you been changed by grace? And that's the point right. of the gospel is to help change us to become right. like Christ. Exactly. The grace, is, grace isn't a get out of jail free card as much as it is an enabling power, right? That's what that's, that's, it's, yeah, it's that's a great goal. way of putting it. So, okay, Cassandra, I think you're, you're on to the next one.
In the Sunday afternoon session, Elder Hales gave the talk titled Preserving Agency, Protecting Religious Freedom. And so right off the bat with that title and also in the talk, um, it's interesting how he tied those two together. The attacks that we see on religious freedom, sometimes people will take the the line of reasoning that, well, your religious freedom is wanting to take away someone else's agency, so that's bad. They don't coexist. But Elder Hales is pointing out that, yes, they absolutely do. And without religious freedom, then our agency and everybody's agency would be restricted, and that is bad. Um, We all need the ability to be able to act upon our consciences and to answer to God in the way that we and others who have different beliefs, all of us need to be able to answer to God in the way that um, we feel directed to do so. And so other house starts out by talking about agency to reviews the council in heaven, and then he goes on to say that... To keep the commandments, we need to know the official doctrine of the Church so we are not diverted from Christ's leadership by ever-changing whims of individuals. Which is a very direct and very important point that a lot of the debate right now about religious liberty is saying that, you know, we can't have these extra legal protections for religious people because they will choose wrong. We're afraid that they will choose to discriminate or choose to... Um, choose actions that we think will make society worse and will make things worse for some individuals. Well, I don't think that that is nearly as big of a danger as some people think that it is, and there are other ways that that can be dealt with without restricting religious freedom. Um, But this this is really the core of it. Um, People who don't like religious freedom sometimes want the churches to change. There has been and some very frank talk about that. There was an editorial in the New York Times last week saying that churches need to be made to take, for he, this was his example, to take homosexual actions off the sin list, he called it. Churches need to be made to change their doctrine on that point. And that's very blatant. That is, I mean, at least we can give people credit for not hiding their true purposes and desires here. And there are forces in society that want to make churches change their doctrine. And the Elder Hales comes back and said, you know, the, the doctrine of the church is what it is. The official doctrine of the church is not going to be diverted from Christ's leadership just because people out in the world have in their ever-changing whims. And, I mean, politics can change so, so fast, I think, especially with the Internet, things that were considered all right just a few years ago are suddenly grounds for being vilified by the Twitter mob, (laughs) but with religious freedom, we know that we can stand firm that our church leaders are speaking for Christ, not just being blurted out by the winds of whatever ideas are getting fashionable at this moment. Um, And so he goes on to talk about religious freedom more specifically, that there are four cornerstones. The first is freedom to believe. No one should be criticized, persecuted, or attacked by individuals or government either, for what he or she believes about God. It is very personal and very important. Um, The second cornerstone is the freedom to share our faith and our beliefs with others. I mean, if we believe in God, and if we believe, as we do, that we have the gospel, we know the truth about Jesus Christ and the atonement, 
and that it is the hope of salvation and exaltation for everyone on earth, I tied right up with that as the belief then that we need to share it. How could we keep that to ourselves without being very selfish, very strangely insular people? <laughs> the the belief, the ability to share your belief goes hand in hand, I would say, with what you believe about God. And then he says the third cornerstone of religious liberty is the freedom to form a religious organization, a church, to worship peacefully with others. So that religious freedom can't just be something that you're allowed to think about in your head and do privately, individually in your home, but instead we need the freedom to form religious communities, to form churches, and to be able to worship with other people together. And then the fourth cornerstone of religious liberty is the freedom to live our faith, free exercise of faith, not just in the home and chapel, but also in public places. The Lord commands us not only to pray privately, but also to go forth and let our light so shine before men, that they may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. And compared to a few years ago, it is a lot more risky to be very open about your beliefs, um, and especially your beliefs about the family and society and sexuality, um, and yet, I I would hope that there are still a lot of good people out there. They disagree with us. That's okay. People of goodwill can disagree, but they still can find the appeal of knowing that we have the freedom to disagree. People have the freedom to find their own opinions, to be able to discuss and promote those opinions, and people of goodwill can get along together. Um, I, I hope that that is the case, and I think Elder Hales hopes that that is the case, that he is um, making this talk in part as a statement of principle, but also as um, an appeal to others who disagree with us to um, hold to not only what they think is important in regards to all of those um, opinions about you know society and morality, but also about this very basic freedom. It's in the UN Declaration of Human Rights, he pointed out, uh, it's in the First Amendment, and so it, it is important. It is worth protecting, and Elder Hales' whole talk, I definitely go and read the whole thing, um, is just a really great defense of that that hopefully a lot of people will take to heart. Well, you and I talk a lot on our uh, Fair Mormon front page news review podcast. The last couple episodes that we've had has been talking about this religious freedom bills and things like that. And of course, over the last couple of weeks, we've seen uh, some very notable uh, discontent in the state of Indiana and those that are responding to that. What To what do you attribute any, any of uh, Elder Hale's remarks with respect to the legislation that seems to be so prominent? Do I think that they're linked? Yeah. Oh, goodness. I don't know. Um, you'd have to ask Elder Hale's. Um, I think that maybe, but I also think he could have started writing this talk, you know, six months, a year, several years ago, and it's for people who pay attention to this sort of thing, which I do because I'm a nerd with a law degree, um, it's, this has been an ongoing concern for a very long time. There have okay. been trends that are fighting against religious liberty for a very long time, and it's probably aren't going to let up based on the debate over the Indiana law and the poll numbers surrounding the whole issue. And I don't 
necessarily think that it's going to get better, but I do still hope it will. And, you know, talks like this, being bold and speaking plainly about it can only help. And I, I do very much hope and pray that there is still a lot of room for people to be persuaded that this is a freedom worth protecting. Yeah, Nick, you know, I, I remember Julie Beck saying that when she wrote Talks for General Conference that she started months in advance. <laughs> uh, it really does, when you read this, sound like he's addressing things that only have happened within the last couple of weeks. Uh, and that's, that, you know, that may be because he wrote it, you know, fairly recently, although I used to translate for General Conference, too, for about three years. And we usually got the talks about mm-hmm. a week or two in advance. Um, so, uh, you know, Elder Hales is talking about principles that have been true for, you know, a long time. Uh, and, and so some of these, some of these principles, um, you know, he could have, he could have said the same things, you know, 20 years ago, they'll probably, you know, you could probably bring this talk out again in another 20 years. So, you know, some of the things though, that are really coming to head right now are his comments about how people are offended about religious people sharing their views in the public square and yet they insist on tolerance for whatever it is yeah. they want to say or he do. He really called that out, didn't he? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that's, 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 it's so hypocritical Absolutely. for people to say that, you know, we should tolerate everything and, and, and anything except for religious viewpoints and religious practices. And that's where we draw the line. There's no good reason in a free society that we should draw the line at political, at, at religious practices. And then beyond that, he talks about how important it is for believers to enter the public square. And he, he gives the examples of the people of, of King Mosiah that were taught to raise their voices for what they felt was right. And um, the title of liberty and how when Captain Moroni hoisted the title of liberty, the people came running together with a covenant to act. And so uh, let's just listen to what Elder Hales says about our responsibility in that regard. As disciples of Jesus Christ... We have a responsibility to work together with like-minded believers to raise our voices for what is right, while members should never claim or even imply that they are speaking for the Church. We are all invited in our capacity as citizens to share our personal witness with conviction and love, every man according to his own mind. Yep, and then he goes into a lot of specifics that, you know, these three definite things that we need to be doing. Brothers and sisters, we are responsible to safeguard these sacred freedoms and rights for ourselves and our posterity. What can you and I do? First, when we become informed, be aware of the issues in your community that could have an impact on religious liberty. Second, in your individual capacity, join with others who share our commitment to religious freedom. Work side by side to protect religious freedom. Third, live your life to be a good example of what you believe in word and deed. How we live our religion is far more important than what we may say about our religion. So I share this talk and see if you can find others who believe differently but still believe in religious freedom and um, keep these things in mind. It's something that 
we're being counseled by an apostle, we need to be actively, anxiously engaged in this this work of protecting religious freedom. So one of the talks that's come up recently in, in some news pieces uh, across the country, actually, was uh, Elder L. Tom Perry's talk. And uh, I wanted to, to open it up to, to both of you guys to see if you had any discussions or some some responses to a, a very particular point that Elder Perry makes in his talk with regards to couples that uh, live alternative lifestyles where he calls them counterfeit. Well, th- here's the quote. He said, We want our voice to be heard against all of the counterfeit and alternative lifestyles that try to replace the family organization that God himself has established. Um, You know, and so people have taken that word counterfeit, and I I even saw one person saying that, uh, well, he's saying that people who experience same-gender attraction are counterfeit. Yeah. And that's not what he's saying. Um, You know, I I, I think uh, to to claim that the Mormon church is— is divisive and hateful because Elder, you know, L. Tom Perry used the word counterfeit, ignores the broader context of everything that uh, the general authorities were saying about how important it is for us to work together with other people to show love and respect. And so we stand up for what we believe in, and we do believe that a marriage between a man and a woman is ordained of God. And that's what we're talking about when we're that's talking about an eternal family. Uh, we're not talking about families of multiple uh, men or women. Um, we're, we're talking about a specific relationship where a man and a woman are married and they have children and they're sealed for time and eternity. Um, and that other kinds of arrangements, I mean, we literally have had have seen people, um, it's, it's called a thruple now. Uh, yes. Where they're you know yeah. with with two women and a man. Um, this would I've be, seen three men in Europe. Well, three men. So this would be a counterfeit of a family. This is not an, a, a a a kind of marriage that's ordained of God. And uh, to say that um, that, that uh, L. Trom Perry is um, you know being degrading or hateful, you know, <laughs> ignores all the degrading and hateful people the things people are saying about L. Tom Perry and and the general authorities. Um, but it's it's simply a, a a clear way of distinguishing what we believe is authentic in in terms of what God has ordained versus alternatives. And in in our view, the alternatives are counterfeits of what ac- God has actually ordained as being uh, a marriage and an eternal family. Right. And you know what it comes down to here. I can understand why some people would be hurt by that. There are people who, you know, don't believe what I do about God and about the eternal nature of families who are just doing their best in a crazy world. And if anyone like that is listening, um, I hope you can understand just a little bit that, you know, we believe that God has said that not just for now, but in eternity, a marriage between a man and a woman, and then the family that they create when they have children, that is the rule. That is what he has said is going to bring us the most happiness and is going to be the basis for our life as eternal, exalted beings living with God. And down here on earth, things are confusing. Things don't go according to plan. Things don't always line up the way that we wish they did. And so we get that. 
Um, I think that most Mormons, definitely most Mormons that I know, have a lot of goodwill toward all sorts of people and all sorts of lifestyles and family arrangements. And yet, we can't be silent about what Heavenly Father has said is the ideal. The exception does not disprove the rule. It means that we can, you know, reach out and try and understand better and get to know different kinds of people. That's all great. But we still have an obligation to teach what the basic truth is and what the rule is. That's what Elder Curry was trying to do. He was also trying to say that there are voices out there. There is the influence of the adversary who is trying to make people less likely to form the ideal family. And he does that by counterfeiting the the things that make a family great, saying you can find love, you can find acceptance and stability in these other forms. Well, you might be able to for a while, but in the eternal scheme of things, you're not going to be able to. So, yes, counterfeit is an appropriate way to express that. I really don't think that Elder Perry meant to say that any person or sort of person is a bad or lesser or just unworthy of kindness on a sort of person. But there is a truth, and then there are ideas that are meant to distort the truth, and we have an obligation to teach that. And, and Nick, let me, let me just uh, refer to what uh, Elder Christofferson said uh, in his conference address, um, because it, it addresses this point and puts it in right. context, just like what Cassandra said. I mean, the extent to which a gay marriage is counterfeit is that it is uh, it's basically telling people a lie that they can be eternally happy in a relationship between two people of the same gender. And it's the responsibility of God's messengers to help people understand what the truth is. And the, the, the truth is that eternal families are made up of men and women who have children together. So uh, Elder Christofferson, though, helped to put that in a broader context. And this is what he said. To declare the fundamental truths relative to marriage and family is not to overlook or diminish the sacrifices and successes of those for whom the ideal is not a present reality. Some of you are denied the blessings of marriage for reasons including a lack of viable prospects, same-sex attraction, physical or mental impairments, or simply a fear of failure that, for the moment at least, overshadows faith. Or you may have married, but that marriage ended, and you're left to manage alone what two together can barely sustain. Some of you who are married cannot bear children despite overwhelming desires and pleading prayers. Even so, everyone has gifts. Everyone has talents. Everyone can contribute to the unfolding of the divine plan in each generation. Much that is good, much that is essential, even sometimes all that's necessary for now, can be achieved in less than ideal circumstances. So many of you are doing your very best. And when you who bear the heaviest burdens of mortality stand up in defense of God's plan to exalt His children, we're all ready to march. With confidence, we testify that the Atonement of Jesus Christ has anticipated and in the end will compensate all deprivation and loss for those who turn to Him. No one is predestined 
to receive less than all that the Father has for his children. Yeah. And whenever I hear that term counterfeit, it sounds to me like counterfeit money. That's all I keep thinking about. And and what is counterfeit money other than a very deceptive currency that has no value? Yeah, and, make and, you think that it has value and right. make you think you're going to get what you want with it. But then in the end, you're going to be disappointed. Absolutely. And I think that it's lacking that authority or lacking that uh, support, if you will, that it's a it's an official uh, recognized money or currency the same way that as much as we, you know, they want gay marriage to be something that is divinely sanctioned, it's, it, I think Elder Perry saying it doesn't have that authority. It won't have that authority. It's not part of it. Well, and as Elder Christofferson noted, we're not talking about different kinds of family arrangements right. that sometimes result because um, of, 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 you know, the vicissitudes of life that, that we, we sometimes encounter because, you know, physical or mental impairments. Maybe same-sex attraction results in somebody not being able to get married in this life because, right. you know, they don't, they don't find themselves. They can't come to it. They, yeah, they, they, they can't find a spouse to whom they are attracted. Um, and, and Elder Christofferson is, is noting there, there are single mothers. There are, uh, you know, people who cannot have children. There are, uh, people who are widowed or, you know, widowers. Um, you know, Elder Christofferson says our hearts go out to, to all of these different kinds of, of situations and that God loves his children. We don't understand all things, but we know that. Yeah. And we know that God will, uh, God is there for us and that ultimately, that everything that we have, can, everything that God has, can be ours. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's summarize. Any closing remarks uh, from you, Cassandra, as far as your impressions of the Sunday sessions as well as the uh, women's sessions? Um, I think it shows a lot of things, but one thing it shows is that our leaders are definitely not encased in a bubble. I'm totally unaware of what's going on out, out there in the world and concerns that people have. Um, I think that so many of these talks were just very real, very down to earth, trying to reach out to a lot of different people where they are at. Um, so just if anyone ever is um, questioning on that point, I'm sure, you know, do these leaders really know and care about me and the kind of struggles that I have when it seems like they are up on a pedestal in Salt Lake City? The answer is yes, they do know, they do care, and they are, this conference was just a wonderful, a wonderful chance to, for them to reach out. Yeah, thank you. Steve, any, any concluding thought? Yeah, Nick, I mean, this is just further... Uh, evidence that God's representatives on earth are paying attention and that they receive guidance and inspiration from God to give us direction that's pertinent to what we're dealing with today. And uh, I, I love to receive that kind of guidance and direction from from modern-day prophets and apostles and, and women who have been uh, set apart to help guide us yeah. as well. Excellent. Yeah, and there, there were so many good presentations. Of course, we want to encourage people to Listen as much as they can to General Conference, and uh, we will provide a link to all the talks for both set, both uh, days, or all three days, I guess, if we're going to call it that, of General Conference. We'll put a link to that at the posting of this episode at blog.fairmormon.org. And for those that hadn't heard part one uh, that went over the Saturday sessions and the priesthood session of General Conference, we will place a link to that uh, podcast as well at the posting of this episode. So thank you for tuning in, and... 
Uh, we'll meet back up next conference, six months. We'll, we'll do this again. See you then, Nick. Hey, thanks. This has been a production of Fair Mormon. This and other podcasts are available at fairmormon.org. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Fair Mormon or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Please subscribe to our show in iTunes under the name Mormon Faircast. Questions or comments can be posted at blog.fairmormon.org in conjunction with this episode. Thank you for listening.